Good morning, Grace Hill. It's so good to see everyone. Uh, my name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Hill Church, and I'm excited uh, to continue in our study uh, in the book of Ruth. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open that up to Ruth chapter 3. That's the, uh, the chapter we'll be in. We've already covered Ruth 1 and 2 in previous sermons. So if you've missed those, I really encourage you uh, to go to our website or our podcast and you can uh, listen to um, those sermons. But Ruth chapter 3 is where we'll be together uh, this morning. Now, because uh, my entire immediate family are members of this church, uh, many of you know the kind of family that I was uh, blessed to grow up in. Uh, I didn't just grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in a home that loved and cherished Jesus. Uh, it wasn't one of these cultural Christian homes where we just you know, went to church every once in a while. No, this this was a home where our faith informed the way that we lived. I was discipled to follow Jesus from before I can even remember. I never had one of those, you know, crazy conversion stories where, you know, I was actively rejecting God and living this wild lifestyle and then had this encounter with Jesus and, and everything changed. That's that's not my story. I don't have that story. I can't tell you the point where I all of a sudden started to believe in Jesus. Now, I know people who have that story, but I don't have that story. My faith was important to me uh, through high school, in college. I even majored in biblical studies in college, right out of college. I got a job doing ministry, uh, vocational ministry at a local church, uh, you could say it did not take long for me to become a professional Christian. I had strong knowledge of the Bible. I could act mature in my faith. I didn't do anything that would cause people to question my integrity. See, I had built my identity as someone who was a strong, mature Christian. I was building my career on the fact that I was a strong, mature Christian. But there is a big difference between finding your identity as the model Christian and actually believing that I was a sinner in need of the grace of God. Those are two completely different things. Christianity as a social construct and actual rescue from death and despair that is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two different things. See, as someone who was in vocational ministry, I was a pastor early on, as someone who grew up in a strong Christian home and as someone who valued being seen by others as a strong Christian, if you asked me why I needed the gospel, if you asked me why I needed to be saved, I could give you the right answer. And that answer, it would sound sincere. It would sound heartfelt. 
But during that time in my life, did I really believe that I needed to be saved? Saved from, from what? Did I really believe that I was someone who needed the blood of Jesus to be shed on my behalf to pay for the egregiousness of my sin in my heart and my own rebellion against God? Did I believe that? Not really. I really didn't believe that I had sinned in that kind of way. I wasn't one of those people. I would say that I needed the gospel because that was the right thing to say, but I didn't really think it. There, there wasn't a conviction, a sorrow over my sin because I, I looked at my life and I didn't really see much that I was doing wrong. That was until 2010, not long ago. I had already been in ministry for a few years. I was a pastor, standing on stages, opening the Bible and, and, and preaching to people. It was during that time, after a, my first year of marriage to Kim, that was a pretty hard year. Kim and I had been here in Virginia, and then after a year, we moved down to Dallas so I could attend seminary. And God started to do something in my heart that at first wasn't all that fun or great. God started to show me that everything I was building my life on, although it had a Christian veneer to it, you'd look at it and it looked good. It, it wasn't actually a love for Jesus. It was really a love for myself. God began to show me that I was prideful and I literally loved myself more than others, that I saw myself as better and I looked down at people. He began to show me that I had a heart that was selfish, that rarely inconvenienced myself for other people. I could articulate the theological intricacies of the gospel but I cared less for the lost. I didn't care if people really heard the gospel. God showed me that I loved being in the ministry more than my own wife. And I was a lousy, absent husband during that time who did a great job at making everything sound spiritual so you cannot argue with me. See, I was a good Christian because that was my identity, I didn't have all this overt external sin, but my heart was sick. And I used God, and I used God's word so people would clap for me and not give God glory. In God's grace in 2010, he showed me the sin of my heart, how really I was a fake. All this Bible knowledge, all this history of being the model Christian, and it was all about me. And God revealed to me that I needed to be saved. Saved. Not just intellectual assent to the things of God. Like, no, I needed rescue. I had a sick, 
rebellious heart that loved myself more than God and I deserved his judgment and that my only hope was rescue because I could not change my heart. That was not something I could do. I needed to put my faith in someone else other than me. And that was Jesus. This is what I want to talk about this morning as we jump into Ruth 3. What do we mean when we say that we need to be saved? That's become such a common word in our faith. What does it mean when we say we need to put our faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus? What does it mean to convert to being a Christian? How do we do that? Because maybe there are people in here who are like I was. Your life has a Christian veneer to it. Anybody else looking on probably wouldn't see anything that's off. But if we're really honest, maybe you're not sure what you need to be saved from. Or maybe you're here and you're not sure what you believe about Jesus and you're just still on your journey of faith and you have no idea if Christianity is true or not. And this whole idea of salvation, getting saved, coming to Jesus is just confusing to you. So either way, whoever we are, this morning, I want to study this. I want to look at this in, in Ruth chapter 3 because I think the scripture is going to illustrate this for us. So that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to read Ruth 3 together and, and get into that. But before we get into chapter 3, let me just recap us and where we are in the story, chapters 1 and 2. Because if you missed the first two sermons, I want to make sure you're up to speed in the story of Ruth. So there was a woman living in Bethlehem named Naomi and her husband, uh, she had a husband named Elimelech and she had two sons. And so this family decided to move to Moab, which is modern day Jordan, uh, to escape a famine that was going on in Israel. Now, when they got to Moab, uh, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. But... Her two sons marry Moabite women. That's Ruth and Orpah. Ten years go by. Ruth and Orpah do not have any children. And their husbands, Naomi's sons, die. So now we have Naomi, who is a widow, living in Moab, a foreign country to her, with her two daughters-in-law, who are also childless widows. So Naomi decides to move back to Bethlehem. Orpah stays behind in Moab, but Ruth clings to Naomi. She's faithful to Naomi and goes back to Bethlehem with her. And so for Ruth, going to Bethlehem with Naomi, this is not an easy experience for her. She is a foreign, childless widow living with Naomi, who is also a widow. They are very poor They are very vulnerable women in a patriarchal society with no good men to protect them. They're gonna struggle to eat. They're gonna struggle to be protected and not get taken advantage of. 
So this is a point in the story I think we all need to understand and, and feel about the predicament that Naomi and, and Ruth are in in this place. I mean, imagine being plucked out of your country, your cultural context, and dropped into another country where you have no money, no relationships, you don't speak the language, you don't know the culture, and you have to be on guard from predatory men. I mean, this is a lonely and dangerous place that Ruth and Naomi are in. And so as we talked about last week, God then, what he had done, and he had put into the law this provision that allowed the poor to collect food from the crops of, of other people's fields, right? God required landowners in the law to leave some crop behind when they harvested their grain so the poor could come behind and glean those crops, collect those crops so they could have food. So when Ruth gets to Bethlehem, this is what she does. She goes into the fields to glean and collect food for her, her and Naomi, and she so happens to glean in a field of this godly man named Boaz, and Boaz so happened to be a relative of Elimelech, right? Naomi's late husband. And we see that Boaz treats Ruth with dignity and respect and sends her home with a five to six week supply of food for her and Naomi. And that's where the story leaves off. So Ruth has had this incredible experience with Boaz here in Bethlehem, and then chapter three begins. So I'm gonna read for us Ruth chapter three, verses one to nine. You can follow along with me in your Bible. Uh, the words will be on the screen behind me as well. So here's where the story picks up. It says, then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to Ruth, my daughter, should I, not, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. He probably slept by his grain to protect it all night. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, that might sound like something odd for Ruth to say to Boaz in that moment. Spread your wings over your servant, because you are a redeemer. So let me clear this up for us a little bit. First of all, what does it even mean that Boaz is a redeemer? Because if you remember back in Chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi tells Ruth, hey, Boaz is one of our kinsmen redeemers. This is why Naomi was so excited that Ruth had gleaned in, in his field. And so what Naomi is referring to here is the practice of leveret marriage. 
Uh, you can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 10 if you want, but this is how it goes. If you are married and your husband dies and you do not have a son to carry on the name of your late husband, then the, hus the brother of your husband who had died, your brother-in-law, is obligated to marry you so you can have children. And your first son would carry on the name of your late husband, your first husband, okay? You tracking? That's leveret marriage. This was put into place so the name of your first husband would not be forgotten. Now, we don't know if Boaz's, uh, Boaz's exact relationship with uh, Naomi and Elimelech, uh, Ruth's um, uh, mother-in-law. We don't know that exact relationship. Verse 12 uh, tells us that Boaz was not the first in line to redeem Ruth. There was someone else in line first. But, but what we do know is that Boaz is one who could redeem Ruth if no one else in the extended family would. He could marry her and carry on the line. And so knowing this, Naomi instructs Ruth to do something unexpected, to take a pretty bold risk. So Naomi tells Ruth, get dressed up, put your makeup on, go down to the field, wait till he goes to sleep, uncover his feet, and then lie down there at his feet. Now, to be honest, this kind of perplexes scholars. Um, you know, we're not really 100% sure what the custom is here. Some want to say that this was like a sexual act. The text really doesn't imply that at all, so most reject that interpretation. But we know that in this gesture that Ruth does by uncovering his feet, she is basically asking Boaz to marry her. This is a proposal. She pleads with him to, to redeem her, marry her, spread his wings, spread his garments over her. And we do have biblical support for this custom of when someone spreads their garments over a widow, it is basically a, a gesture of, I will marry you, I will redeem you. But here's what I really want us to see this morning, that the book of Ruth here is clearly trying to illustrate something for us. Uh, here in chapter three, we see Ruth taking the risk of going down to Boaz and hoping she can take refuge under the wings of Boaz as her redeemer. Now that's a very familiar phrase. Back in Ruth chapter two, Ruth is with Boaz in the field. Boaz praises Ruth for her faith in God. And look at what Boaz says, chapter two, verse 12. Boaz says to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And there are tons of other places in the Bible, it's all over the Psalms, where God describes salvation like hiding under the shadow of his wings. All right, so the, so the book of Ruth is taking this encounter between Ruth and Boaz, her redeemer, and providing for us an illustration of what it means for us to encounter our redeemer. That's, that's Jesus. Well, an illustration for what it means to take refuge under the, the wings of our redeemer and find salvation. 
And here's what it wants us to see. This is the illustration it wants us to see. That, that what it means to place our faith in Jesus, what it means to be saved, what it means to trust Jesus, to convert, what it means to, I don't know, ask Jesus into your heart, start a personal relationship, however you want to call it, whatever phrase we come up with, what that means is to take refuge. It's not an intellectual ascent to high theological truths. It's not a prayer that you pray, and if you get the formula right, you unlock the grace of God. It's, it's not a transaction. It's not a moral standard that you somehow work your way to. It is the act of taking refuge in your Redeemer. You realize you're in danger. You have no way of getting yourself out of that danger. And so you take refuge under the only thing that can save you. I mean, think about it. What does it mean to be a refugee? I'm in danger where I am. And there's nothing I can do. I need to escape. So I go to a new country. And when I come to that country, I have nothing to offer you. I've got nothing but the clothes on my back. There's nothing I can pay you. I have nothing to offer you. The only claim that I have is I'm in danger and I need you to be merciful. That's it. That's, that's being a refugee. That's how you take refuge. I've got nothing to offer. The only thing I'm hoping for is, is you are merciful. This is the image, the illustration that we see in Ruth 3 of what it means to put your faith in a redeemer. Taking refuge. And we need to understand what that means this morning. So as we continue to study Ruth 3, we're going to learn two things, two things about what it means to take refuge in our Redeemer. And the first thing that we need to know is that this taking refuge in our Redeemer is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. For Ruth, it was an act of faith for her to go to Boaz that night, uncover his feet, and ask him to be her Redeemer. Uh, when, when you put your faith in someone, you are trusting them to do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And so the very act of faith has to have two components to it, uh, humility and risk. Humility because you have to be able to admit that there is something you need and you have no way of providing it for yourself. And, and risk because you cannot control if the one you're putting your faith in will come through for you. Now, Ruth was in great need. She was a childless widow in a patriarchal society. She had no chance of finding a husband, probably, because she was from Moab, unless she was redeemed through this custom of leveret marriage. Ruth had a need, and she knew she could not provide that need for herself. So for Ruth, humility was not an issue. But what is remarkable about Ruth is the risk she took. I mean, let's just think about this for a second, what Ruth did. First of all, Ruth is a woman who is asking a man to marry her. That, that's not customary in this culture. Secondly, Ruth was very young, and um, Boaz was much older than her. Again, not customary for her to ask him to marry her. 
Third, Ruth was poor, asking a rich man to marry her. And on top of that, Ruth was a Moabite. She was an immigrant. She was not part of the covenant community of Israel. So Boaz was a wealthy Israelite man, and Ruth was a poor immigrant woman. So what Ruth did that night when she went to Boaz is she broke through gender, age, economic, and racial barriers. That's some risk. That's huge risk. No guarantee Boaz would say yes to that. But she took that risk because she had faith that Boaz was a man of God who would redeem her. And when we encounter our redeemer, Jesus, it takes an act of faith. We need something that we absolutely cannot provide on our own. And unlike Ruth, our problem is not our place in society or our gender or our race or economic class or anything like that. Our problem is that we have sinned against a holy God. God created us to to love him and to love others, but we have darkened our hearts and we love ourselves more than we love God and we love others. Every one of us. I mean, like I shared in my story, I was the good Christian. You couldn't point to much external sin in my life. Oh, but I loved myself more than God and definitely more than other people. There was envy in my heart and pride, malice towards others, a desire to use the things of God so people would look at me and applaud me. I mean, we have all sinned against God internally and externally, and we deserve his judgment. And there's nothing we can do to make it right. Nothing. None of our works. Doesn't matter what we give, how much we go to church, if you go to seminary, if you're a pastor, it does not matter. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. God says that all of our righteous works are like filthy rags to Him, stained with our selfish motivations. And you can be like me and try and live the most religious, squeaky clean life, and it will not change your heart. Because what we need is forgiveness and a new heart. And that is not something we can provide for ourselves. And so in the same way that Ruth acted in faith by laying down at the feet of Boaz, it takes an act of faith for us to come to Jesus and say, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to bring you. I have no reason why you should redeem me. I'm a sinner. And you are holy, and I need to be saved, saved. My sin has put me in a dangerous spot under your judgment, and I've got, I've got nothing, but, but I'm here because I recognize the only chance I have is, is your mercy. That's it. That's the only chance I got is that you are merciful. Right? Taking refuge is a humble and risky act of faith. But the second thing we need to know about taking refuge in our Redeemer is that it's also an act of God. Read the rest of chapter 3 with me, starting in verse 10. Ruth had just said to Boaz, hey, 
Spread your servant over your wings for you are a redeemer, verse 10. And Boaz said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he does not, is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. By the way, that's 80 pounds. I was gonna bring 80 pounds of rice this week. Last week I brought 50 if you weren't here. Okay, anyway. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man has done, had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley's he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And Naomi replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, after Ruth steps out in faith and asks Boaz to marry her, we see that Boaz here has to respond. And as we already noted, Boaz had many reasons to disregard Ruth. Uh, from society's perspective, Boaz would have to lower himself to redeem Ruth. But what does Boaz do? Uh, Boaz is moved by her humility it says that he's willing to do what needs to be done for him to, to redeem Ruth. Uh, in the next chapter, chapter four, which we'll study later, we see Boaz confront the person who would be first in line to redeem Ruth. That person's unwilling, but Boaz is willing to do it. See, Ruth's act of faith is only as useful as Boaz's favorable response. There'd be no redemption without the mercy of Boaz. And our only hope for redemption, you and me, for being cleansed of our sins, is for God to act. He has to do something. God needs to do what I can't do for myself. And guys, that's the story of the Bible. Uh, you start in the beginning, God creates us, but then we fall into sin. We reject God, but then God gives us the law. In the beginning of our Bible, and the, and the law shows us that we cannot do for ourselves what we need to do to be right with God. We cannot live up to that standard. And so get to the Gospels. God sends our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And Jesus lives this righteous life that we cannot live because he has to do what we cannot provide for ourselves. So he lives righteously in our place. And then Jesus goes to the cross and he takes on the anger and the judgment and the wrath of God against our sin. The anger and the wrath that, that we deserve. And if we were to face that judgment, if we were to face that wrath from God, it would put us in hell for eternity. But it put Jesus in the grave for three days. 
And he exhausts God's wrath. He satisfies God's wrath till it's gone. And then he walks out of the grave. He conquers death. And now he lives as our redeemer, willing to redeem us, which means he's willing to apply his righteous life to us and he's willing to apply his victory over death to us. Redemption. And so yes, to to take refuge, we must act in faith, but God must act in mercy and do something to save us and he has done that in Jesus. To put your faith in Jesus, to be saved, means to trust that Jesus has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. Has nothing to do with your knowledge, your religious rituals, or how squeaky clean your life is. It has everything to do with taking refuge at the foot of the cross. That's it. And so if you're here this morning and you consider yourself a Christian, my question for you is this. Does refuge describe your faith? Is that a good word for it? Have you had that moment where you got on your knees at the foot of the cross and you said, God, I'm a a sinner and I have a heart that is so selfish. I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to bring that will even come close to righteousness. My my only hope is that the life of Jesus would be given to me and Jesus' victory over death would be applied to me. Your mercy. I mean, do you actually believe that you need to be saved from sin? That you need Jesus to do that for you? Or are you like I was? Always been a Christian, live a Christian life, say Christian things, act like a Christian, vote like a Christian, decorate your house like a Christian. And although you can talk about the cross of Jesus Christ and you know the Bible well, you really have no clue what you need to be saved from. There's no true conviction, sorrow over your sin. In Matthew 7, Jesus tells us what it will be like for people like who I was. And maybe some people here, when they come before the judgment of God. He says in verses 22 and 23, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? I mean, that's me. God, I was a college pastor. I was evangelizing on campus. Look how awesome my life was. Look how much I know the Bible. God, aren't you impressed with me? And verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. This is what happens if we do not humbly take refuge at the foot of the cross. 
We can have crosses around our neck, Bibles on our shelf, fishes on the back of our car, but if we have not recognized our need to be rescued from the wickedness of our own sin and taken refuge at the cross, Jesus will say, I I never knew you. Only those who've been covered by my blood shed on the cross, those are my people. The people who have humbly taken refuge under the shadow of my wings. You haven't done that. So here's what I want to ask everyone this morning is how do you need to respond this morning? Because every one of us needs to respond somehow. So so let me help you out. If you're here and you have taken refuge at the foot of the cross and you're hearing this message and how God has redeemed you in, in Christ and you're just saying amen, like, Praise God, and I want you to respond this morning by coming to the communion table that's right up front, celebrating what Christ has done for you. This is why we go to the communion table regularly. It's just to remind us that we have to take refuge at the cross, and we break the bread, and we're reminded of how the body of Jesus was broken so we wouldn't have to face the wrath of God, and how the blood of Jesus was shed so it would cleanse us from all of our sin. And so if that's you this morning, Take some time. Praise God in your heart for what he has done for you. Come to the table and remember what Christ has done for you. But but if you're here and you call yourself a Christian, but maybe you're like I was. Your, Your life has a Christian veneer to it, but you've never actually really understood that you need to be saved. That that you're in danger of Jesus saying to you that he never knew you because you never came to the foot of the cross. It's possible you've always seen yourself as a Christian, but you're not. I don't say that to be harsh. I say that because you need to hear it. I needed to hear it after I was a pastor. So this morning, I want to encourage you, if this is you, if you're feeling that conviction Take refuge at the foot of the cross. God's grace is here for you. He wants you. Don't disregard that conviction of your heart right now. Humble yourself at the cross. And so if you're feeling that conviction this morning, here's what I want to encourage you to do. We're going to have prayer ministers on the sides here during this next song. And if you just need to get up and you need to process that or or talk to someone about that conviction or pray with someone, those people are going to be available to you. We can help you walk through that and pray with you and maybe walk you to the foot of the cross for the first time. And lastly, if you're here and you've never considered yourself a Christian and you're still unsure what you believe, here's what you need to know. Earlier I mentioned stepping out in faith is an act of humility and it's an act of risk. It was a risk for Ruth but it's not a risk for you because God has already acted. Jesus has lived. He has gone to the cross. He has been resurrected and is alive today and he is offering redemption to you as a free gift if you'll take refuge in him. If you know that you're a sinner 
and that you need redemption. I plead with you this morning to to come to one of our prayer ministers as well on the side. Pray with them and, and ask God to save you and experience redemption for the first time. You don't need to know everything. You don't need to have your life together. You don't have to have all your questions answered. All you need is need. Don't disregard the redemption of your heart this morning. Come take refuge. So we have our communion table. We have, we'll have prayer ministers to this side. How, how do you need to respond this morning? Don't let the fear of others seeing you stop you. Right, following Jesus is, is about humility, not impressing others. Don't let others stop you. And so what's gonna happen is the, the band's gonna come up. They're gonna, they're gonna play a song for us. And I just wanna encourage you to sit in your seat. Listen to the lyrics of the song if you want. Pray. Ask God, God, how do I need to respond to this this morning? And, and whenever you're ready during this song, just, just come forward if you if you want to take communion, come take communion. If you want to pray with someone, please come and pray with someone. But come forward as, as you feel led. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to respond. God, my prayer It's very simple right now. Would you unleash your spirit in this room to soften hearts and open eyes to convict not to weigh people down in guilt and shame, but to lead people to the cross. You are a God who has rightfully pronounced judgment over us, but in your grace and mercy have offered redemption. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room who has not taken refuge under your wings, God, would you lead them to that place right now? In Christ's name.